0: All right everybody and welcome to another episode of the Future Ear Radio podcast. I am very thrilled to be joined today by Gabby Merchant. So Gabby, thanks for being on today. How you doing?
1: I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely, doing well. So um you and I met at the Missouri Academy of Audiology show, the the West meeting um in Kansas City. Shout out to Liz Femler who is the president of MAA this year and is doing an awesome job um you know with a uh, corralling the troops and, and getting, you know, a lot of people back into the fold here in, in the Missouri uh, Academy. But you were one of the speakers there and I had the opportunity to get to know you a little bit and thought that you would be a great guest on the podcast. So um, why don't we kick off with just some introductions? Um, do you mind sharing a little bit about, you know, your background, how you came into audiology and, um, you know, kind of the path of, of to to Town, more or less?
1: Yeah, for sure. So um, I am originally from the East Coast. So I'm a New England girl, um, and I had kind of an atypical trajectory into the field in that I didn't kind of start out thinking I was going to be a speech language pathologist, which I feel like is the default for many audiologists, and then go to a undergrad comp disc program and kind of find my passion for audiology along the way. So I went to a small um, liberal arts college um, in Western Massachusetts called Smith College and i had some exposure to audiology prior to going to college just in that my aunt was an audiologist and i had a guidance counselor in my high school whose son was born with hearing loss and i just remember hearing her talking about kind of their experience with that and he actually um you know him getting hearing aids and things like, i just always was kind of intrigued by it but it was not thinking like i want to be an audiologist at that point point. and when i got accepted to smith they accepted me through a program called stride which stands for student research and departments And they basically pair you with a research mentor starting your first year Um, and so i had a pretty unique opportunity to start doing research really early on in my um training and so as an undergrad you know before my first year even they sent me this long list of like projects that different professors were involved with and you had to like rank them and send them back and they would pair you with a mentor and there was a project on that list um, at clark school for the deaf which is an oral school. Um, for children who um, are deaf and hard of hearing in Northampton. It's like adjacent essentially to Smith College. And there were um, a couple professors there, Jill and Peter Villiers, who were studying kind of theory of mind in deaf children, psycholinguistics in deaf children there. And so I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. Like it, it just kind of like elicited some of my memories of like my aunt teaching me sign language when I was young and things like that. And so that's what I put down as like my first choice. Didn't really put that much stock into it, how I'm and I did end up getting paired with Jill and Peter. And Jill's my primary mentor, and she was just amazing. And so I got to do research at Clark School um, starting really early on. And so I was exposed to a lot of kids with cochlear implants, with hearing aids. I met an audiologist there, and I was so intrigued by, like, the merging between, like, pediatrics and healthcare and technology and science. And, like, I just got really interested, and I said, Jill, I want to be an audiologist. <laughs> and she was like, okay, but you ask a lot of questions and she was like, I think you should consider a PhD. And I was like, nope, I wanna be an audiologist. And she was very convinced I would not be content as a full-time clinician. And so, and we didn't have like an undergrad disk program at Smith. So many liberal arts colleges don't have like a speech and hearing science undergrad. So I was a psych major at the time. And she found this PhD program called the Speech and Hearing Bioscience and Technology Program, which was a joint program between Harvard and MIT. She was formerly, formerly at Harvard. So she like got it from like an email and a listserv. And she was like, Gabby, look at this PhD program. Like it's perfect for you. It's got a big clinical focus and audiology and hearing science, but it's a PhD. Like, I think you'd love it. And I was like, okay, kind of intriguing. And so she was like, okay, if you're interested you can't be a psych major. Like it's not gonna prepare you. This had like a huge engineering focus because of the MIT half of the program. She's like, I think you need to take some engineering classes. And so I waltzed into the engineering building at Smith, um, not knowing anything as a sophomore. And I found a random door of a, a faculty member that was open. And I knocked on the door and she was having office hours. And I was like, hi, I'm not an engineering major. Like, you don't know me, but I'm really interested in this, like, very small, specific PhD program that you've definitely never heard of. But I'm looking for some advice on what courses I should take. And she was like oh well what's the program I'm like we definitely never heard of it but and i love what the program is and she looks at me and laughs and says i was in the first graduating class of that program no way so i was in the office of susan boss who's an amazing hearing scientist and was in the first graduating class of s-h-e-t um and it was so serendipitous that and like jill didn't know that susan was there like she just got this like for like forwarded email so it was really funny and Um, I quickly kind of shifted my research focus from working with Jill to working with Susan. Um, I ended up self-designing a major. So Smith does allow that, which is pretty cool. So we combined in some of the engineering courses, some of the courses I was taking in psychology and education. And Smith has a master's in deaf education. And then you also can take classes at the other five colleges in the kind of area around Smith. So UMass Amherst is one of them. And they do have an undergrad Convist program. So I took a few classes from there. And so I'm like probably the only person from Smith with a speech and hearing science degree um and so i also kind of pigeonholed myself into like hoping i'd get into this phd program because i set up the whole trajectory to hopefully get in um and so thankfully i did get accepted to that phd program and i did apply to aud programs like i was still very committed to like having both degrees like i wanted to do translational research And at the time that I was looking for kind of an AUD and a PhD, ideally a combined program, the AUD was really new. So I was looking for programs around 2008 and I think the AUD started in around 2006. And so most of the AUD programs were still just trying to figure out how to go from a master's to an AUD. And to like weave a PhD into it, they hadn't quite figured it out. And so when I got into SHBT, I just decided that like I knew I would get really strong research training there But I was like, I'm still doing an AUD after this or in conjunction with it if I can find a way. Um, And most people were like, okay, we'll see about that. So (laughs) I went to SHVT. I spent five years there. Um, I finished there in 2014 and I went straight into an AUD program at UMass Amherst because um, I was convinced I would stay in New England forever. And then a couple of years into that AUD program, I ran into Lori Leibold, who is um, the director for the Center of Hearing Research here at Boystown, um, at a conference. And she was like, What do you think about coming to Boystown for like start a there? And I was like, I don't know where Nebraska is on that. <laughs> like, there's no chance, like, no way. And she was like, about it and i actually had a close collaborator who was um an advisor on my phd who was at boystown steve neely so like i knew about boystown i had known about boystown since my undergrad like i used to read um, mary pat moeller's work and pat stomakowitz and michael gorga and i was like very inspired by their translational research and like i literally remember being like jill i want to be them like but the idea of like going to nebraska was like so out of the realm of anything i thought i would consider because i was so committed to staying in uh new england forever but eventually laura was like just come for a visit see what you think and i was like okay small field don't want to burn bridges like we'll go for a visit we'll tell them nebraska is not for us we don't do cornfields and we'll fly home back to our little new england bubble and we got here and i one was very surprised about how cool omaha is as a city but i remember walking into boystown and like I must have met people for like five minutes and i just it's like this really hard thing to explain but like i just knew they were my people like Mm -hmm. i knew i had found my place and my people and um i'll never forget that feeling but i was like oh no this is where i belong like (laughs) the level of translational research that's done here but like you could just tell how collaborative and supportive the environment was and the bridge between audiology in the clinic and in research is so amazing and i knew i just had to come. And so somehow along the way, I got convinced that this was where I was supposed to be. So I was very fortunate to be able to come and do my externship here. So I finished my, you know, AUD coursework and then came and did my externship here um, at Boys Town. And while I was doing my externship, um, wrote a grant and built a lab and got to like oversee construction of a brand new lab space and Um, And then I just very easily transitioned from being in the clinic to directing a research lab. So now I um, don't see patients clinically. Currently, I'm a full-time research scientist, but my research is very translational. We're recruiting patients directly out of clinic. um, And so I still feel like a strong connection with clinic and do plan to go back into clinic formally formally at some point. Um, But yeah, I run a full-time research lab now studying pediatric awesome. hearing loss which is kind of what initially got me inspired in the field so that is that's cool. the very long-winded
0: trajectory <laughs> very um yeah like a lot of serendipity there um that's it's so funny awesome. actually just a quick side note the last episode that i just recorded uh was with an slp at clark school so what is it what are the odds there right and
1: that's um, funny yeah yeah
0: so, I mean, I'm learning about that program and, 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 you know, that's, I guess, school system and then, like, all of the online support materials that they have, but, you know, what are the what are the odds that, you know, that was part of your um, genesis, more or less? Yeah,
1: and a big part, and actually that guidance counselor I mentioned, her son was connected to, like, I think he was getting services in some way for Clark. I remember them talking about Clark, even though we lived, like, an hour away, like, where my high school was, like, an hour away from Smith. And so, I like, that was one of the linkets where I was like, oh, like, he got services here. Like, Clark, cool. Like, that's what the trigger was for me. And it's changed so much because it used to be, like, an institutional school. Like, kids mm-hmm. lived there. Mm-hmm. And with technology, like, they don't need to be there, most of those kids. You know, like, so the programs have changed so much. So I'm sure now I'm going to have to listen to that one because I want to hear all about, like,
0: no what r- it's r- playing r- at
1: Clark these days.
0: Yeah, no, it's really interesting. But, I I mean, I think it kind of dovetails into a lot of what we'll talk about today, which is, like, you know, I I, I think that there's just so much opportunity to, um, and I think there's so much focus now on like I keep saying like it it almost feels like um that there's like this portion of audiologists that have done this amazing job of championing um, you know, the efforts behind mandating newborn screenings. And it's um you know, it's like that was like a huge monumental effort and it's almost kind of like mission accomplished because of to a certain degree, you know like that, for the most part newborn screenings are pretty mandatory across the country and i think most people are at least getting that initial screening and so i think that where it's it's sort of like focusing now like along the age spectrum um you know and i think that like for the kids that fall through the cracks or you know that they aren't referred on properly or whatever it's like this interventional audiology space seems to be gaining a lot of momentum and i just hear more and more um focus on that. So I think it's a really positive thing. Um, so I just want to go back to your story for a little bit. So like, uh, you, you go and when you're at Smith and you're self-designing your major and all this, yeah. and you're, you're having to take some of these engineering classes and stuff like that. So help me understand what was the first major that you were getting or what was the first PhD, I guess. Right.
1: Well, so Smith is my undergrad, and so I came in, and Jill and Peter were psycholinguists. So they study like you know the how children learn language and understand language and other people. So like theory of mind is basically like how like does a child understand what you know? So like at what point do we understand what other people are thinking? So if like a child watches me put you know a block in a bucket, and they no longer see the block, like does the can the child know that I know that the block is in the bucket because I'm the one who put it in or Those types of things. So that's theory of mind. And so they were trying to understand that um, and chill, like, how that may differ in children who um, are deaf and hard of hearing. And so, which was so interesting to me, but I definitely did always have like, I liked math. I liked hard, like the harder sciences, if you will, as opposed to just the social sciences. Mm-hmm. I kind of liked, rich, I like medicine yeah. a lot in general. Um, I was a, I'm a first gen. And so at one point I considered like thought about medical school and I honestly was like, well, I could never afford to go to medical school because like I'm paying for college myself. So, Mm -hmm. um, which in hindsight was not probably the best mentality, but um, it all turned out just fine because I feel like I found this nice niche Mm -hmm. where I was able to combine medicine and technology and science. So anyway, so I was a psych major um, and then, yeah, like the shift to engineering. So like engineering students that have like an engineering degree from Smith like you have to start your first year like it's a very strict um like course sequence and so i really just wanted to take the engineering courses that applied to hearing science which is a lot of like circuit signals and systems acoustics um differential equations there's a lot of um you know quantitative aspects to all of that and so susan helped me like kind of figure out what courses i would need to prepare me best for shbt um but it was weird because i didn't have all the same background like you know i I didn't didn't learn to code like the other engineering students did. so i'm like trying to play catch up and i hadn't done calc since high school and um so it definitely was a shift like a really big shift and then i'm also taking these classes like education like about how we you know how just like general classes about like hearing loss and um, things to consider when working with these populations. So it was a, a hodgepodge in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah, for sure. So then I guess like it's really cool that you found your way to Boys Town. I'm happy to hear that the Midwest um, was able to win your heart over. Uh, you know, it's <laughs> we. I, I, I'm not surprised to hear that you had some preconceived notions um, that were immediately dispelled. Uh, but, you know, you found your way there and, um, tell us about this lab and tell us about what you're doing now. And, and then I think we can, you know, that will kind of bring together all of these like pieces along the way. Um, cause it sounds like everything sort of was building toward this lab and it all culminated together. All of this disparate background that you have, um, it all kind of congealed. With yeah, it did. Out, right?
1: So uh, honestly, like, so the first project I worked on was Susan, so I'm still at Smith was a study, and you mentioned newborn hearing screening, which is interesting because it was kind of related to newborn hearing screening. So a large percentage of the kids that refer on newborn hearing screening, so say, you know, you know, 10% of kids, and these stats are old off the top of my head, so I think they're better now, but say 10% of kids refer on the newborn hearing screening. Of that 10% of kids that refer, the majority of them do not have permanent hearing loss. Like 90% of them are referring because they have leftover gunk in their ear canal, and their middle ear. They've been floating in utero for, you know, nine and a half months. And so it's this transient, basically conductive hearing loss that's causing them to refer. And so there's a lot of improvements in the hearing screening programs now where we like do a second screen before discharge if we can. You know, they wait as long as they can. They're not, you know, try not to screen like the minute the baby is born to let some of that residual mesenchyme and kind of um, burnix and things like make its way out of the ear um so hopefully that we're not getting as many of those referrals but that was a big interest of susan is could we improve newborn hearing screening programs by assessing whether there is something going on like in the ear canal or the middle ear that's causing that referral now that wouldn't rule out a permanent hearing loss so it doesn't necessarily change things but like if you know that there's not a conductive component and a kid is referring on newborn hearing screening like that raises red flags that like this is very likely a permanent sensory neural hearing loss and we cannot lose this child to follow up right so um my project was to use a technology that is similar to tympanometry which looks at how the eardrum is moving um but called wideband acoustic admittance and to kind of get some normative data and little babies so i made measurements at a local pediatric office in newborn and one-month-old to look at kind of how age affected these measurements so that maybe we could utilize that to compare to kids who we knew had this residual mesenchyme in their ear, this re- these transient conductive hearing losses, to see if that maybe is a tool that could be added to newborn hearing screening programs. So that was my very first kind of like project, very focused in this area. And now I use wideband acoustic admittance in my lab to study kids with ear infections, which is another very related, you know, condition. Like also basically stuff in these kids' middle ears. So yeah, uh, it really has all come full circle, um, in a lot of ways.
0: Well, I think it's, so when, when you were presenting at the Missouri Academy of Audiology, you presented on wideband tympanometry, something that I've only heard about. I've never really understood what the methodology is and why it differs and what the, you know, like basically the, the rationale behind why this might be complementary to the current procedures or even superior in some ways. So for someone like me that's not an audiologist, what's the easiest way to kind of um, wrap my head around what makes wideband unique and, and maybe why it's compelling for some of these different kinds of diagnostics that you'd be performing?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. So if you're familiar with standard tympanometry, that's a measurement that's done very routinely in clinic where we play usually a low frequency sound um, and we pressurize the ear canal at the same time and kind of look at how the eardrum responds to that low pitch sound. So we assess hearing across a wide range of pitches or frequencies, low pitches, medium pitches, high pitches, right? We do that when we do our basic hearing tests. We do it when we do otoacoustic emission testing, which is kind of an objective way to assess how the inner ear is functioning. We assess a wide range of frequencies when we do ABR usually, especially diagnostically. But when it comes to assessing middle ear function, we've always just done this kind of single low frequency measurement which is interesting because again we're assessing all of these other things across a wide range of frequencies um and so wideband band tympanometry as the name sort of implies is basically assessing the middle ear system across a wide range of range of frequencies as opposed to just that low frequency um the frequency that we test standard tympanometry at was actually chosen because it made the calibration really simple like it wasn't necessarily like the most diagnostically informative frequency. It was just that at the time it was developed many moons ago, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it made the calibration easy, which made the math easy, which made the equipment easy to you know develop. And so, and that just has really persisted. And I will say a lot of the things that go wrong in the middle ear can be detected with a low frequency stimulus. So mm-hmm. our ear without getting too, too nerdy on you. Like our outer and middle ear system is kind of like a mechanical circuit. And so there are like mass and stiffness effects that can influence things. So literally physically your ear can be stiffer because, you know, a bone is, um, you know, kind of not able to move in the same way as it could because of a disorder like otosclerosis or stapes fixation where you get this abnormal bone growth and now your middle ear bone can't move as well. So the system is physically stiffer where you can have physical mass added to it because you have fluid in the middle ear, which is also making the eardrum not move as easy. And so you have both mass and stiffness effects. So our ears naturally have these mass and stiffness properties and pathologies change the mass and stiffness properties of the ear. And when we look at just a low frequency, like we do in standard typenometry, we're only assessing the stiffness properties of the ear. We're not considering the mass or the resonance or all of these other features that could be changing with different pathologies. And by looking across a, ra- a wide range of frequencies, we can look at mass and stiffness effects and resonance and things like that. And so in my head, and, and this is not, I don't think even how people who have developed wide tympanometry necessarily think about it, but like in my translational head, like tympanometry is almost a screener to me. It often can tell me that there's something going on in the middle ear, but it's not, really good at telling you more beyond that that like what is going on and wideband can often be much more diagnostic and so we can start to differentiate there's something wrong and this looks like otosclerosis or there's something wrong and this looks like otitis meteor a certain subset of otitis media. there's something wrong and this looks like superior canal dehiscence, which is actually in the inner ear um, and mimics a lot of middle ear pathologies so um yeah i think the diagnostic versus screeners
0: no that's very hopeful.
1: I think about it.
0: I mean, because the the closest like I guess parallel that I'm drawing here is like again going back to newborn screenings. A lot of uh, programs, they you know the default method is the you know auto acoustic emission, and then you fail that, and then you get referred on to an ABR, um, automatic brain response. And so then it's like, is that kind of the same idea here in your mind? Is that I mean, because like it's a, I guess you could just default to using wideband, but do you see this as something where the it's almost like uh you do a standard TIMP and then that sort of flags, okay, maybe I need to do the more advanced wideband TIMP, which is gonna tell me more? Is that the yeah. kind of idea?
1: So the like OAE versus ABR, like those really test different components of the system. And so like ABR is gonna tell you a lot more about like the brain stem, like an always only go out to like the level of the outer hair cell. But I think ABR is a good parallel because we use as a screener, we use like a click, which is just kind of this like wideband, you know, stimulus that really kind of tells us about the mid frequencies really well. And that's what's used in these automated um, ABRs that are done in newborn hearing screening. But when you have a diagnostic ABR done, we do the click, but we also do these like tone bursts. So we're looking at frequency specific responses. And so that's what I kind of think of it. It's, you know, with wideband tympanometry, you're still getting the standard temp. You're getting information at 226 Hertz and you're getting information at all these other frequencies. so um that said the difference between abr where you can do a click or all of these kind of frequency specific tone bursts is that the frequency specific tone bursts take a lot longer right so that's why we kind of isolate let's pick specific people who kind of refer on our screener to get the diagnostic protocol there's almost no difference in time between a standard temp and a wideband temp cool okay and so for that reason i don't think that we need to screen the standard temp. I think we just make a shift from doing standard temps to wideband tympanometry on everyone where tympanometry would be indicated because really you're going to get at least as much information as you would have gotten with the standard temp. And in cases where it's diagnostically helpful, you're going to get more information. So it's not that in every case you're going to learn extra, but in a number of cases you will, and it'll be useful in those cases.
0: No, this makes total sense. It's a more robust type of diagnostic. I get that you're testing at different frequencies in addition to the low frequencies. So again, just in my layman's mind, um, what what are the kinds of things that you might be detecting with these middle and higher frequencies? Um, you know, as a clinician, like what, what are some of those things where maybe standard tympanometry is not gonna, you know, give you a clear picture of what's going on, whereas wideband will at least give you some clues and what would those clues maybe indicate?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. So there's been a number of kind of pathologies that have been identified in the literature to kind of that wideband has been identified to be sensitive to. So there's one kind of clinical scenario, I guess, where wideband seems to be helpful is in more adult populations. But I guess it could be pediatrics. If you have kind of an intact eardrum, so you don't have a perforation, there's no obvious pathology of your eardrum, and you have a well aerated middle ear, so no fluid, and you have a conductive hearing loss, right now, the assumption in that setting is often that you have something called otosclerosis or stapes fixation, which is probably the most common cause of that presentation. But several other things can cause that. So you can have a disarticulation or a break in one of the ossicles, or you can have a fixation somewhere else in the ossicular pathway. So people can be born with like fixations of their malleus or one of the other bones. So it's not the stapes. It's, you know, something else in the pathway is fixed. Um, or you can have a problem in your inner ear called superior canal dehiscence. And that's a hole in your superior canal that energy gets shunted out of. And so it's a true conductive hearing loss. But when we think conductive hearing loss in audiology, we think middle ear. People don't think inner ear. And so um, there are people who have SCD or who had operations on them to fix their stapes fixation because it was thought that, you know, the, all the test results pointed to, like, this person probably had a stapes fixation. They bought a prosthetic put in and then, like, nothing improved. Their hearing didn't improve. None of their symptoms went away. And so, uh, wideband seems to be more sensitive to kind of differentiating between those pathologies. Um, in my lab, we are really interested in otitis media um, in kind of infants and toddlers. So, I kind of Alluded to the newborn hearing screening application early on, and that's been extensively studied. People are still actively working on that, like identifying hearing loss, um, kind of differentiating between conductive and sensory neural very early on in newborn hearing sc- programs and NICU babies and things like that. Um, and I've been seeing kids who kind of are in that six month to you know five year old range who get kind of recurrent ear infections. Or, um, kind of, a persistent state of fluid in their middle ear. So, when we talk about an ear infection, I think people all think like red raging eardrum, kid has a fever, upper respiratory. That is absolutely an ear infection. I call that acute otitis media. You have this acute state of infection. Um, you know, antibiotics are often indicated, but there's also something that people often say is an ear infection there's no actual infection present. And that's when the fluid in the middle ear just kind of persists for a long period of time. And that can be the fluid that resulted from an episode of acute otitis media. But sometimes people can end up with this persistent fluid without infection because of dysfunction of the eustachian tube or allergies or all sorts of reasons. Um, And it's those kids that I'm really interested in as an audiologist, because those kids have this fluid in their ear for three months, six months, nine months, 12 months. And often you don't even know it's there because there's no symptom other than potentially some hearing loss. Mm-hmm. And kids are not really great at reporting. This is why the age of identification of hearing loss prior to newborn hearing screening was so late because kids aren't good at reporting that they have a hearing loss. They don't They don't know if anything's wrong. Like, totally. OK, the world sounds like it's underwater, but they don't have a comparison necessarily or they don't have the language to articulate what's going on. And so these children are often found kind of incidentally, like they fail a screening at school or the pediatrician happens to notice that something looks weird about their ear at a routine checkup or whatever. Um, And so those kids can be walking around for long periods of time with hearing loss from that. Um, And our diagnostics are not as sensitive to it. So tympanometry can often tell us that there's fluid present or absent, but there's lots of variables about these ear infections and fluid in the middle ear that can differ. And so some kids with fluid in their ear have absolutely no hearing loss. And some kids have 50 dB hearing losses, so moderate hearing losses, and kind of everything in between. And so I've been really interested in how wide band might be able to help us understand um, kind of how much fluid is in the middle ear, how does that affect their hearing, kind of what are the characteristics of maybe that state that might suggest that it's going to persist for a long time. Like if we could predict that that fluid is going to stay for a long time, then we might say, this child needs tubes. But if we could say, oh, this is one that's going to clear really quickly on its own, we are not going to want to send that child to surgery as quickly. Right. So those are the types of um, things that we've been looking at and finding that wideband is sensitive to at least some of this variability because it's so much more sensitive to variations and kind of the broad mechanics of the middle ear. Uh, So that's another. And I think, you know, in pediatrics, that and newborn hearing screening are the two biggest applications Mm -hmm. because that I mean for ear infections, I mean, they affect such a large percentage of children. Like there's a huge, I think, population of kids that could benefit from improved diagnostics in this area. Um, For sure. Yeah. So those I think are like some of the big ones. There've been studies that have looked at things even like increased intracranial pressure right now, which has to be monitored with like a shunt in your skull. But intracranial pressure, like can also change. Has been shown to be able, like you can actually measure changes in intracranial pressure in your ear canal because of how it changes the pressure in your middle ear space. And so, like Susan Boss has looked a bit at that and looking at both wideband tympanometry and autoacoustic emission. So there's some really
0: interesting
1: applications
0: uh, like that for
1: it as well.
0: Yeah. No, I think this whole thing is like it's absolutely fascinating that in 2023 it feels like we have relatively robust uh, diagnostics. You know, again, like to your point, um, I, you know, prior to the discovery, uh, by my namesake, Dr. David Kemp, uh, the much more famous one, um, <laughs> who discovered the Onoacoustic Acoustic Emission, you know, like how do you objectively determine these things? So it's cool that there are like these anatomical functions of the body that, that like really do sort of tell a story. And what's really cool though, is that there's still so much more that we haven't fully learned and that we continue to learn and that like with today's medical technology, you have the ability to kind of like discern this information. So I imagine as an audiologist, as a researcher, that's got to be really, really exciting. I want to go back though, now that I have a better understanding of like where your road ended up, I'm curious, like I get the, you know, you obviously had this kind of like meandering journey that led you to Boys Town, but why did you initially glom onto wideband tympanometry like what was the impetus for why that became the more or less like your passion
1: yeah so I I mean and I do use more than wideband tympanometry but it has has been like the thing that has followed me kind of Mm -hmm. throughout my career if you will um and part of it is just that like it's what I had expertise in so like (laughs) when you get a PhD like you're becoming an expert in something right and so As an undergrad, you don't have a lot of say in the projects you work on. So Susan had a fun bid project and you're a student. So like you do whatever your mentor is working on. And so that's one of the projects she was working on. I really wanted to do something very translational with human patients. like, And that's what we could come up with that was like funded under whatever funding she had at the time. And then when I got to SHBT, I um, wanted to work with humans. And so the... Labs at EMP Buddy are, many of them are very basic science labs. So they use animal models. And um, I tried to do an animal lab and I literally cried sacrificing the mouse. Like I just can't do animal research. I I just, and I learned that about myself very quickly. And there were honestly limited labs where like I could do work with humans and I still wanted a really basic science piece. So I ended up doing research in human patients and then simulating patients in cadaveric preparation, which didn't bother me at all because the person
0: had already passed. And donated. don't exactly. The, so, but the like the little mice, the pygmy mice, you can't do it. Can't do that.
1: Can't do That's it. Stupid. Like mice, chinchillas, like. And I'm so grateful for animal research. Like I think we can learn so much from animal models. So this is not a like. I actually am involved now with a cross species studies where we're using an animal model like. My best friend was doing animal research at the time, like it's very valuable. I just personally could not do it myself. And so there were limited options on projects that I could work on on the auditory system on humans. Plus, in addition, like though I think you can absolutely be like an audiologist and a hearing scientist who does basic research in animal models, I wanted to do very translational research. Like I wanted to take questions from the clinic and like study them in patient populations. And so that's just where I felt like you know, my passion was. And so being able to work in human populations. And so the lab I ended up in with Heidi Nakajima and John Rosowski and Samuel Merchant, um, which is actually the lab that Susan trained in, which wasn't like she wasn't like you have to go to my lab. It just it all kind of fell together. They were just starting to get interested in using wideband in their lab. And so I had this experience with wide band from working with Susan. And so it kind of became a good fit that we would learn how to Kind um, of study and learn more about wideband acoustic emissions or wideband tympanometry together, um, and I could utilize what I had learned about it already to benefit um, the lab in some ways. And I had access at Mass Eye and Ear to the most interesting patient populations, right? Like they see the most unique patients. Like I was able to study superior canal dehiscence, you know, when there were not cohorts of these patients at like any other hospitals other than maybe like Johns Hopkins. And so to be able to study kind of wideband in these very unique patient populations where it could be beneficial to have access to those patient populations was so unique and really cool. But my passion was always Peds. Like I wanted to get back to pediatrics. And so that lab was studying adults. And so like Boys Town sort of allowed me to like bridge everything where I was like, Mm -hmm. okay, now I can really get back to pediatrics, but utilize everything I've learned about wideband and apply it to this population of children who also have a conductive hearing loss. Um, or conductive pathology going on, um, where I think wideband would be beneficial, so.
0: Okay, so you've mentioned the term interventional, or I'm sorry, um, translational, uh, like a translational lab, which was something that I wasn't totally familiar with until we met, and you were telling me about what that means, like, particularly in the Boys Town setting, so I think this is really cool how Boys Town sort of allows for you to kind of take, the research and then immediately apply it but can you speak to like how how Town is designed and you know from this standpoint with the translational lab piece
1: yeah for sure so i i mean i think people define translational research in a number of ways and so it's kind of one of those buzzwords so like i think about basic science research a lot as like the bench work the animal models the you know people in labs with beakers and you know that type of in, but what you think of it that though there's certainly basic science research that happens in humans asking very basic questions about mechanisms and things um whereas translation i think like you said it's like there's this question that came up in clinic and now i'm studying it so you're, but it's not like an intervention necessarily that's like a next step where you're really applying it back to the clinic um so it's i don't know to me it's like kind of that bridge of like they're very clinically driven questions that you're then studying, even though like some of the questions I'm asking in my lab are probably more basic, like how does fluid volume influence hearing loss in otitis media? That's probably a more basic question, but I'm studying it in a very translational way. So I don't know. The terms are all like very interchangeable. <laughs> but um, coming from a place that was like amazing at basic science, but didn't have as much translational research. Like when I recruited patients at Mass Eye I was recruiting them primarily from our otolaryngology clinic. There were several um otolaryngologists on staff who like worked had labs collaborated with labs um you know there was a lot of interest in otolaryngology but there wasn't like a strong tie with audiology the audiology department at the time and so the otolaryngologists were amazing i benefited so much and learned so much from them and honestly they saw the coolest most unique patients but like i wanted to be an audiologist like i wanted to study hearing loss and And so like that tie to audiology, I hadn't experienced a place where like a, with like a very strong bridge to audiology, I guess, if you will. And so I like coming to Boy Sound was amazing because there was this incredible bridge between our audiology clinic and research. Like all of our audiologists are, have like this, um, city training it's called. It's like a biomedical research training so that they can help in research labs, consent participants if they need to, like, they literally support the research program in that way. They help recruit patients. Like if we have protocols, we want to roll out in clinic to like test them out. Like that's something that they will collaborate with us on. Like, you know, many people um, on staff like have a role in research and in clinic. So we have multiple people who like are part-time clinic, part-time research. Um, And so that bridge between audiology and research is just so strong. It's not like you're just coming and knocking on their door and being like, hey, can you help me recruit participants? Like. And there's nothing in it for you because like they really believe in the research program like we have a lot of these like lunchtime talks where like the audiologists come their scientists come like it's just so integrated and i am certainly biased but i honestly think it's the best place to do translational research because you don't like it's just it's hard to do it. it's hard to recruit patients like it's Mm -hmm. hard to recruit these populations so if you don't have access to the clinic you don't have buy-in from the clinicians like you can't do it. It's like banging your head against a wall. And so, as a scientist and an audiologist, like to be able to bridge my worlds like that in a way where like that infrastructure already is there with just people who are genuinely passionate about improving hearing health care and advancing hearing health care, like it's just what's amazing.
0: So, like, are these types of um, transitional, translational uh, research, translational labs? these kinds of settings are these are these typically where like the forefronts of like new diagnostic procedures in general sort of spawn from it's like the research and then it it's kind of like it starts here and if it's successful then it kind of cascades to other clinicians because to your point they're not maybe as well equipped to um, I don't know trial um, these new diagnostic methods and then so it's almost like you're kind of validating for the field. um, Here's an entirely new method or procedure.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's exactly it. Right. And so when you get to the point of a clinical trial, like it's usually places like this, unless it's like an industry company who's like running a clinical trial for like an investigative drug or something. But yeah, I mean, like Sound had a big role in both OAEs and ABRs, like establishing normative data sets. And, you know, and that's a relationship between clinic and lab. Right. Like that is you know, that was Michael Gorga and Pat Somaquis did a lot of that. And so they bridged like they actively saw patients in audiology, like their offices were in the audiology clinic, but they also like ran research labs. And so um, I think that is exactly what happens. It's like we, you know, we think about with evidence based practice, like we we are trying to build the evidence to then provide, you know, clinicians with that evidence base so that they can practice using that evidence base. And so um, but you need you need the clinicians to be part of that. Like you need people who are full-time clinicians who are actively seeing patients, who are um, hearing certain complaints from patients or who are testing these protocols. Like there's so many things that like are developed in research that they're like, this will never fly in a clinic. Like I don't have an hour to do this speech where right. test. Like there's no way that that's clinically feasible. And so when you're not a clinician and you haven't worked in clinic and you don't have that like in the back of your head all the time or a clinician like in your ear testing out like, you know, we really need the clinicians to be like, yeah, this is not feasible or like kids can't do this or what have you. And so you need those, that bridge to facilitate a lot of that. I don't know if that answers your question.
0: No, that totally does. I I just, I find this to be so interesting is where do these new methods and diagnostics come from? And I think that makes a lot of sense that it would start as research, obviously. And then like, where are the first implementations at the clinics? And I think that this helps me to better understand like what makes a um you know like an institution like boystown so unique uh, is this like translational piece which i feel like as a researcher that's got to be a really exciting environment to be in because it's like not just you but it's all of these other sort of uh translational fields that are you know in the midst of sort of like undergoing this discovery of like are we at the forefront of of all of these different kinds of methods yeah. and procedures that's got to be just a, I feel like a really exciting for somebody that has that kind of aptitude that is sort of like this scientist that is trying to kind of bring things to life um, that's got to be I think a really exciting setting.
1: Super exciting and there is ba- like great basic science that happens at Boystown too I think like our translational research is kind of our what makes us so special and unique in a lot of ways but there's certainly a lot of basic science and actually i think wideband tympanometry and wideband acoustic admittance is um like a really good example because doug Keefe, who recently retired from boystown but was at Boys Town for many many years like his basic science research like really is what created wideband tympanometry so like what is in the interacoustic titan device and now the gsi Timstar, like the math behind wideband tympanometry which is real complicated like there's I understand why they were like "Ooh, 226 probe tone this is simple let's do this like the math behind wideband typenometry is super complicated the calibrations are super complicated like it is not a trivial thing and he did I mean years and years and years and years and years of development to like figure that out and make it happen and so like it's also really cool to be someone who now is studying wideband but also in a very like trying to really figure out like okay how do we get this into the clinic but like to have this deep appreciation that I could do none of this had it not been for the work of this person who's been at boystown for all of these years right where so like it all that came and it was I mean there are other people at other places who have significantly contributed to um kind of wideband topometry and wideband acoustic events being where it is and Susan was on a lot of the early work John Allen like a lot of people have contributed but like having someone at Boytown who was such a big contributor to that um was really special and cool too and uh it's nice to be able to kind of hopefully continue pushing that work that he spent
0: standing Literally. on the shoulders of giants.
1: Literally standing on the shoulders of giants. So seriously, big shoes to fill, which I will never fill. But it's not. <laughs> it just. It's special to like see it really all come full circle like yeah. that. But over like a thirty-year time span.
0: Mm-hmm. No, that's really cool. It's I mean, slow. so like you're it seems like, you know, you're kind of still just getting started. Like, I know that you've built the lab and like, you're, I'm sure it doesn't feel like you're getting started, but it seems like you're kind of at the, you know, the earlier portion of, of your career and your journey and all that. So like, where do you sort of see the next, um, you know, phase of, of your career as like a scientist, like what's next for you? If, if, uh, you know, not saying like after Boyston. I'm just saying in general, like with what you're focused on now, obviously you're you're kind of in the midst of, of doing a lot of this work around wideband tympanometry. Do you have kind of a line of sight into like, you know, I really hope that I can achieve this phase and then that would allow for me to move on to this thing and I want to explore this facet, whether it's with wideband or if it's with something related, like what does the future kind of hold for you yeah. from that standpoint?
1: I think, you know, if by the end of my career, and I would agree that I'm very much on the earlier end of that career, uh, if we have transitioned to using wideband instead of standard tympanometry, like, I will... You're mission accomplished. Mission accomplished, right? But realistically, like, I think that transition, not like, really to see it, like, regularly implemented in clinic might take my whole career. And not that that's the only thing I'd be working on, but, like, so throughout my career, I hope to find ways to um, contribute to that in both like kind of academic research ways, but also in doing things like coming to the Missouri Academy of Audiology and talking about it, like, um, you know, really translating to clinic means like boots on the ground with the clinicians. And so, you know, I can go to these big research meetings, but like most audiology clinicians do not have the funding or time or support to be able to be going to the big meetings. And so I really think it's like Date meetings. I did a mini course for inner acoustics, like things like that, where I'm hoping um, can provide some education and training. And like, um, mm-hmm. so doing things like that, I think will continue to be something that feels important to me and helping translate. Cause ultimately, like, I can do all the research I want and publish all the papers I want and get all the grants I want. But like, if it never gets applied to clinic, then what's the point?
0: So have you felt like, um, you know that you're making some headway in that regard. That you're getting uh, positive reception from clinicians that are um, at least inquisitive about this and saying, "Please tell me more." And I'm I'm interested in I'm I'm really interested in what you're doing.
1: I think so. I think we're starting to see more uptake. So, you know, it's new equipment for most people. It requires buying new equipment. Up mm-hmm. until very recently, there was you know only two devices on the market that were FDA approved that could do it, and um one of them does not pressurize so just as why i've been acoustic and ambient pressure it doesn't do the pressurization which i think for clinicians is going to be important so really it was just the titan that i was seeing people use and so if you didn't have a titan you can't do it and so you know people aren't learning about it during their aud in most programs and so i just i think that that's part of why it's been slow um but yeah i feel like even like after the missouri academy of audiology meeting i had a few Mm -hmm. emails with people who are like, okay, what do we need to do this? Like we should be do it. And so talking about like, well, here's your equipment options. And, um, you know, I'm have some relationships with some of the people in the companies that, you know are supporting and selling these devices. And so just making sure that they feel like they have what they need to talk about the advantages of it. I mean, it's new to a lot of them too, right? Like all the manufacturer reps, like, um, and so, yeah, I think know that'll be a big piece but the other piece is that broadly like as much as i use wideband in my research like like my research program as a whole is not just about wideband tympanometry right so i am really interested in improving diagnostic tools and kind of figuring out how we can individualize healthcare, get more objective measures um for pediatric populations because those are the populations that are often pretty difficult to test so you know what a 10-year-old with an ear infection we can do a hearing test on them and understand how they're hearing very easily they can raise their hand when they hear the beep but you know an 18-month-old does not raise their hand when they hear the beep and though we have a lot of strategies to test kids mm-hmm. um clinically there are still limitations to those especially if you want to get like really understanding how each ear is hearing and so the better objective measures we have that can tell us kind of what's happening in the ear and how kids are hearing would really improve healthcare um generally but also like if you think about places where you don't have a boy's town down the road. So rural clinics, like, mm-hmm. you know, they don't have pediatric audiologists and play partners and all this specific expertise. But if they can put a microphone in a kid's ear and say, like, this is how this kid is hearing without the kid really having to do anything without a lot of extra time and resources, that could be really powerful at
0: improving kind of healthcare broadly. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you that it seems that that's sort of the macro theme right now with healthcare is this move toward more personalized medicine in every kind of way shape and form including the diagnostic procedures um so it seems like this kind of bodes you know or I guess it's it jives with the the broader push in that direction and it's cool to kind of hear specific applications of that um within this industry um so I think that's really interesting and and I'm sure that there's still, again, there's so much more that we can learn and and there's, you know, like you said, the, the fact that, like, Wideband has existed for a while, it's only available in a select few amount of pieces of equipment today, but I think that, like, it's kind of a... It probably is a little bit of a chicken and an egg thing where it's, like, there needs to be demand. Um, and how do you generate that demand? Well, you need to have the people that are actually doing this today in something like a translational lab that are showing evidence of, like, this works. There's a lot of interesting things that you can find. And then, you know, then the manufacturers might be more incentivized to make this more of their offering, you know? Because I'm sure, like you said, it's, there are trade-offs. Like, it seems like it's a complex feature that you would have to add, but the benefit could just be that the type of diagnostics that the audiologist can perform are that much more robust which I think in a, like the, in a real big roundabout way, it allows for the audiologists to elevate themselves in the greater standing, not just with the patients, but with the broader medical healthcare community as well.
1: Absolutely. And I think that it, you know, and there's so much more that we need to do to understand, like the patient population is going to most benefit, like even with my work on otitis media, like, you know, right now, you know, kids with otitis media are kind of all lumped together in one big group, but there's so much variability in how an episode of otitis media is affecting an individual child. And we don't really consider that at all in our, um, you know, diagnostics and our management. So some kids with OM, like, are likely going to end up with some sort of speech and language problem down the line. Problems with binaural processing, which means they're not going to hear speech and noise as well in a classroom. Like, they're going to have trouble localizing sound. But it's a subset of these kids. And we don't know how to identify that subset. And we don't know what the features of those kids are yet. And so, if we could figure those out, so we have to like understand what that subset is and how that subset looks. And then, can we diagnose that subset? You know, so if it's this, it is a chicken and egg in some ways. But I think as we learn more, you know, so for me, that's a big piece of my puzzle is figuring out who are the kids with OM that are most at risk for these long term deficits. And then, how do we identify them early on to make sure that they're getting intervention as soon as possible, right? So, it's not all kids with otitis media that are going to have these problems. And so, you know, but if we knew that a child was likely to end up with these problems because of our diagnostic tools, then like it would be such a bigger justification to like get tubes placed. Right. Totally. Let's resolve this as soon as possible in this child. Let's monitor this child a lot more closely. You know, right now there's still like, you know, I think we do the absolute best. Like our pediatricians, our ENTs, like they do the absolute best to decide how to manage kids with as much information as they have. I just want to give them more information
0: so that they can individualize
1: it even more
0: love that very cool so as we come to the close here um you know for people that are listening that want to learn more they want to get in touch with you what's the best way to connect with you
1: yeah so my lab has an instagram it's the tap lab i think is the i should know like the act but anyway we're on instagram the translational auditory physiology and perception lab at boys town um and i'm linked there there's a lab website too that we're not as good at keeping updated but my email's on there i love talking to people about wideband about my research like I love doing guest lectures on wideband for AUD programs so that you know again students are getting some of this training along the way um but yeah I am happy to always chat if there's anything that's of interest or someone has like an atypical trajectory to audiology or is considering not following the very traditional trajectory, I also
0: love talking about that.
1: Sometimes people are like, you did an AD after
0: your PhD. Like, that's so weird. That is, I don't think I know anybody else that's done that.
1: There are very select few people. I know a few. It, I'm not the only person out there, but it, they're few and far between. Um, And so it's, but it, it all worked out just
0: to- It all worked out. Um, I'm curious, like in your lab now, like how many people work with you in this, in your specific lab?
1: Yeah. So I have been amazing research audiologist who's been with me since day one, Sarah Austin, who like is the only reason the ship sail. <laughs> um and then I really am very fortunate to have a um part time research audiologist who spends the rest of her time in clinic. So she actually was one of our AUD externs who stayed on and she spends um, you know, the bulk of her time in clinic, but twelve hours a week she's spending in my lab and that keeps my tie to clinic really, really strong. Nice. Um Since the lab opened, we've collaborated closely with an ENT, um, Dr. Tempero. And so he is both, you know, he helps us recruit, but he also contributes a lot to our scientific um, ideas and, you know, thinking through the the otolaryngology piece. I'm not an otolaryngologist. Those things we study are very otolaryngology related. And so that input is really important. Another really cool thing about Boystown, right? I've got audiologists in my lab, like I have an ENT in my lab, like, um, and then I have... And AUD extern, so Boystown's externship program, has an option to do a research track to it. And so um, I have an awesome AUD extern who started this summer who will spend part of her externship working in the lab. And then I have a research assistant who is an undergrad, actually psych major, like I was once upon a time, <laughs> uh, and will be probably hiring another RA in the near future. So it is, Boystown labs are a little bit different than you know labs at universities because we aren't a university so we don't have access to like undergrad and graduate students Mm -hmm. quite as readily um but still lots of amazing people that um work with me and honestly like i couldn't do any of this without them so plus like the support of our research program as a whole our audiology department like our otolaryngology department like i so many people contribute to the stuff that i do
0: well, it has to be pretty awesome if it was able to sway you away from your beloved New England home. So it is.
1: It's a very awesome. special place. And, like, you know, New England and Boston will always have a very, very, very special place in my heart. And, like, it's also like COVID, if anything, has taught me how easy it is to collaborate mm-hmm. virtually, and remotely, and from afar. And so, I, there's a meeting that I have once a month that includes Susan, my undergrad advisor. My PhD mentor is usually on that call, Heidi, Nakajima. Like, I still collaborate with Heidi and Susan. Like, my atypical trajectory is atypical, it was like, I am still very close with everyone. I like text with like mentors from my AUD. Program.
0: I was going to say, it seems like you're so very close with all of these people.
1: Very close. The field is small, mm-hmm. but I also just think that like my, Journey came so full circle in my lab that I still do things that like apply to all of these people right. in different ways, and so it keeps all those. Keeps I have all my New England ties are still very strong, uh, and so and so it's nice. I get to still work with and talk with all of these amazing people who made me who I am.
0: Really, that's awesome. Well, on that yeah. note, Gabby, thank you so much for coming on today. I've thoroughly enjoyed your story. It's uh it's an interesting one. A little abnormal, but, um, I think you found the right, the right home for you in, and, in and Boys Town and what you're doing. It's, it's really, really interesting and I'm excited to kind of like continue to monitor it and, and see the progression. Now I know a little bit more about wideband tympanometry.
1: I'm so glad. Thank you so much for having me. I know I was a little hesitant that I'd have nothing to talk about. Somehow you found things for us to talk
0: about. And here we are That's in Howard cool and, and you, you captivated me. So right, I think, you, right? I, well, I so think you're weird. more than capable of, of speaking about your very interesting life that you told me wasn't interesting. I, On the contrary, I have to disagree.
1: Oh, well, thank you for having me. And I just love what you're doing in the podcast. So I feel fortunate um, and humbled to be able to be a part of it.
0: I appreciate that. And on that note, thanks for everybody who tuned in here to the end. We will chat with you next time. Cheers.